We're in Acts chapter number 1 this morning, Acts chapter number 1. The uh, preaching is going to, my message is just a little bit different today. It's uh, really more of a teaching message than it is a preaching message. And personally, I'd have to say I, I, I like it about it. I, I like points, and I'm all for point number one, point number two, point number three. And I don't know what you're thinking is three's enough. Three points. Make sure that each one of the points starts with the same letter and then end us with a poem and a story. And that's a sermon. I read Acts chapter seven. Stephen's sermon was nothing like that. In fact, I don't read any sermon in the Bible that's homiletical at all. And I know that homiletics are a good tool to help us stay organized in our listening. I heard a preacher not too long ago who was an excited preacher. And he had a lot of information to cover. And so he was very excited and he's just going down through all of those points with excitement and enthusiasm. But there was no pause. There was no break. And I found myself listening and it's like, wow, I'm just overwhelmed by all of this information. And I thought about times when when I preached, and I'll probably still do it from time to time just because old habits die hard, but sometimes I'm looking at my notes and I'm looking at the clock, and I don't... I want to preach shorter than what I do. And you all know that I always try and I always fail. But you know why I want to preach shorter than I normally do? Not because I want to cut out any of God's Word. I mean, we have a great need today, don't we? But it, it, it would probably, it wouldn't hurt us to preach three and four hours like they did back in the 1600s because we need it today. But I also recognize that we have very short attention spans today. And one thing that I would like for my ministry to be is effective. I would like for it to make a difference in your hearts and lives. And I know some of you sitting here, it's like, hey, preach all that you want, Pastor. We're here. We we want it. We want all that we can get. But I know that there are others that too much information just overwhelms. And so I would ask you to pray for me that I would be the kind of preacher that God would have me to be. But I noticed as I was listening to that preacher, it's like, wow, that is a lot of information. But I can't, I couldn't, I'm a preacher and I couldn't absorb it all. It was overwhelming me with information. And I commented to my wife and she so graciously said, you do that sometimes too. (laughs) To which don't knock her for that. I appreciate, I appreciate having an honest wife. And some of you that feel the same way, you're like, thank you, Sister Lynn, for telling him that. You know, there's a book out there entitled Preacher, Please Quit. And and it's not saying quit the ministry or quit preaching. It's just a, a book that gives a list of all these things that the author wishes that preachers would quit doing. <laughs> but anyhow, Acts chapter number 1 and uh, verse number 1 through 11, much of the message today dovetails with Brother Shue's Sunday school lesson. And uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, read verses 1 through 11. Then we're going to back up to the beginning and all of my points are just going to be verse by verse. I got a point for you out of every verse. And hopefully, uh, by the grace of God, I'll be able to draw us into the Bible rather than just drawing these truths out 
of the Bible. Acts chapter number 1, verse number 1 says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Of course, this this identifies this, uh, this writing as Luke's writing. Verse number 2, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go in to heaven. I want to preach this morning on the subject, living life by your last orders. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for the music today that certainly spoke to my heart, and I thank you for it. I pray that you would teach us, train us to to rejoice, to worship you, to feel the words of these songs that we sing, not just sing them, not just go through the motions, but truly in spirit and in truth worship you. I thank you, Lord, for these that have come today, and I don't know all of their needs. I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't know uh, Lord, I'm sure that uh, most of the people here today are saved, that know the Lord, but certainly it's very possible in a congregation this size that there are several, if not many, that have never truly put their faith and trust in Christ. We pray that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide and bless your word today. We pray, Father, that people would realize that we're all sinners, we all need to be saved, and the only way of salvation is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you're seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Thank you for this privilege of prayer. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last words of Jesus on earth were living words, not dying words. He'd already died and he had resurrected. And I thought about these last words, and, you know, if you knew when your time was up, what would you say, and to whom would you say it? You know, there are people that kind of know when that day's approaching. 
I visited people over at the hospice house, and I know that there are people that know that their days, perhaps even hours, are numbered. They still have consciousness. They're able to gather their family together and maybe give some last words before they cross over to the other side. What a great privilege that that would be. I think about my earthly father and our last goodbye to him. We had no clue that it would be the last time that we would give that hug and see his face and hear that voice. But that's a great blessing. But what would you say if you knew when your time was up and to whom would you say it? Would you perhaps maybe uh, call somebody in and ask them for forgiveness for some failure or sin that you had committed against them? Perhaps maybe you would call somebody in and offer forgiveness to someone that you have withheld that forgiveness from before. Would you give instructions? Would you give encouragement? I, I think about my mom when she died of cancer and she was, to ease the suffering, she was on the um, the liquid morphine drops. And after a while, the cancer and all of that, she uh, was pretty much out of it and not conscious. And she's still breathing and she's still living, but no consciousness. And literally for days, uh, she would be laying in that bed and breathing. Her heart would still be beating, but no consciousness to the world. And then after a number of days like that, she just kind of something stirred her up and she opened up her eyes and we're all around her bedside. We're thinking she's going to go anytime. And she opened her eyes and saw us. And the first thing she says was, well, hey there. And I can't even express the feeling that overwhelmed me at that moment just to say, oh, mama, just to hear her voice and to see her eyes. It was amazing. And we're all just kind of rejoicing over that. And my wife, she's closer to the bed and she was able to hurt here before my mom drifted back off in unconsciousness. Her very last words to my knowledge were, I'm hungry. <laughs> and I thought that is so Mitchell. <laughs> that is, that is so Mitchell. <laughs> and uh, we laugh about that and God gave us that. And I had a, I have to be careful that I'm ethical and kind and charitable here, but I had a kindergarten teacher. And um, she was uh, very much one of these drill sergeant teachers. Uh, my kindergarten was in her the basement of her house, and she had these cubicles set up to where you couldn't see the kid next to you. And if you were ever goofing off, you wouldn't know if she was kind of making rounds around the room and if she was behind you and she'd be watching to see if you were doing your work, if you weren't doing your work and goofing off, she would take her finger and her thumb and she would bump you on the back of the head. Oh, those were the good old days. I don't remember ever telling my mom that I got thumped on the head. I don't remember ever thinking about lawsuit or social services. Back in those days, I know if I would have, if I would have, you know, after getting a whooping by my mom, if I would have said, I'm going to call social services, my mom would have handed me the phone. Help yourself, kid. You weren't going to get anything over on my parents. Oh, the good old days. But she'd thump you in the head. Well, she got saved later in life, but some of her ways didn't change. And 
we actually, um, we would have college and career kids that would go and visit her and sing to her and play their instruments. And she was just one of these types. After they get done playing and singing, she would tell them what they did wrong and how they needed to correct it. <laughs> they, they'd come back from this, this ministry that we did and you, uh, Pastor Mitchell, the, she, they'd tell me about it. And I go, yeah, that figures. <laughs> so I think I'm painting the picture. Well, she passed away and one of the other pastors in our church did the funeral. And so I come to the funeral and she had given, she had given instructions that at her funeral at the end, that there was to be some plates of cookies up toward the front. And as everybody walked by the casket, there would be the table with the cookies and she wanted everyone to take a cookie. I walked by, paid my last respects. I looked at the cookies and I go, you ain't telling me what to do. And I walked off. Interesting life that we live. The reality of it is, none of us know when our time will be. And we have no control over whether we'll get to say those last words. And I would encourage all of us to keep a short list with God, to as much as possible keep a right relationship with our loved ones. I know that we... Sometimes we conflict with one another. We have troubles and we have trials and we have challenges. But if we really are living in light of what the Bible says, knowing that our life is but a vapor and that our time is in God's hands and not ours, maybe we would just think, think secondly about maybe storming off and not keeping things right, because really when life's all over, most of the things that we harbor grievance toward one another, it really is so silly, isn't it? Most of it just doesn't amount to nothing, and it's so much better to just have peace in your heart, knowing that you have no offense or no animosity toward God or men. What a, what a great way to live, to have that kind of a clear conscience. But these were the last living words of our Savior while here on the earth. And I want you to notice as we back up to verse number 1, and I'm just going to take and just try to expound some things that God spoke to my heart about as we go through each one of these verses. In verse number 1, I want to draw your attention to the fact that a Christ-like ministry is characterized by doing and teaching. Notice that it, he's, Luke says, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. That phrase, do and teach, doing and teaching should always go together. If we're to have an effective ministry in helping our children and helping others, then we need to be doers of the Word of God and we need to be teachers of the Word of God. It's not just enough to do it. And to set an example, we also need to speak it. It's certainly not enough just to speak the truth, but we also need to be doing something about the truth that we know. I know we read in the book of James, and the Bible says, faith without works is dead. I understand the dispensational and doctrinal implications of that, but the practical aspect is, is that faith and works should always go hand in hand. We should uh, what we believe should be affecting our behavior and what we do. I've been in canoe races before. 
And I, I know that one oar and one man and one canoe is very difficult to get to where you want to go. Because when you oar on this side, the canoe goes this way. When you paddle on this side, it goes this way. If you just paddle on one side, what do you do? You just go in circles. So there are some that maybe know what the Bible says and are going in this circle. There's others that are doing all kinds of things, but they're doing it in ignorance because they don't have that doctrinal foundation. And folks, that's just a circle going in the other direction. Jesus was one who would both do and teach. And that's the example that he set before his apostles. That's the example that he sets before us. In verse number 2, we see the beginning of the emphasis on the Holy Ghost. There's a couple times where we find that phrase, Holy Ghost, mentioned. I mean, prior, and I'll, I'll mention this here in a minute, but Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. But prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the emphasis in terminology is always the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. There's something about that word ghost that we automatically assume that, you know, we talk about uh, uh, ghosts in somebody's house. We, we, we understand at least that we're talking about maybe the spiritual entity of somebody that used to be alive. I'm not saying that there's a a, a contrast of terms. I'm just saying that the emphasis after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the emphasis switches from Holy Spirit to Holy Ghost. And truly, according to Jesus' own teaching, John 16, John 17, John 18, we know that the Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. It's Christ's presence here on this earth. The Pope is not the vicar of Christ. No church, no ministry, no great man of God is the vicar of Christ. Christ is physically sitting at the right hand of His Father in heaven, but spiritually speaking, He is present in the person of the Holy Ghost. And so this, verse number 2, until the day in which He was taken up, after that He through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen. Listen, always, always the Holy Ghost draws attention to Christ. There are churches today who overemphasize the Holy Ghost. I think that some Baptist churches, because of the misrepresentation of the Holy Ghost and some movements in America today, that we underemphasize the Holy Ghost. And once again, we go back to what Jesus said, both doing and teaching. I believe that the Holy Ghost is a person, and I believe that that personal relationship with the Holy Ghost creates an experience. Some people might think, what, what are you talking about? I'm not talking about some experience that is um, unbiblical. If you have a supernatural experience that doesn't line up with the Word of God, it is a ghost, but it ain't a holy one. And so that doing and teaching, we need to understand who the Holy Ghost is. We need to understand what He is doing today. Yes, being born again produces 
a spiritual and even likely an emotional change and effect in a person's life. But all that we experience and all that we feel, we need to examine that in light of what the Word of God teaches. The Holy Ghost never draws attention to itself. He always draws attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been in churches. I'm not talking about charismatic churches. I'm talking about independent Baptist churches that are very animated, very emotional. And I've been, been, I've heard preaching where people are getting all excited and vibrant and just outwardly, whether it be running up in the aisles, grabbing the Christian flag and hooping and hollering. And I'm not being critical of that. But I tell you what I am critical of is when people, when the preaching is saying that if you don't feel the same way, then you're not right with God or maybe you're not saved. That's harmful, folks. Just like we heard in Sunday school, Brother Shu talked about Peter and Andrew. All of the apostles were very different. Some were more animated and emotional like Peter, but others were like Andrew that we don't even know. He was probably very just calm, collective. And I guarantee you, every single one of them had a little bit different preaching style. It's dangerous to take our flavor of Christianity and say that's the only way. Need to be careful with that. But one thing I do know, I've never heard anybody preaching about shouting that's made me want to shout. I've never heard preaching on emotional experience that has given me an emotional experience. Oh, but I've heard preaching on the Lord Jesus Christ that has brought me to tears. I have heard singing about the blood of Calvary's cross that has led me and my heart sometimes just feels like it's just going to explode and has led me to raise my hand and sometimes say amen or praise the Lord. And that's come from inside. It's an emotional response. But telling me that I need to do that has never motivated me to do that. Because we're focusing the attention on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit saying, I don't want the attention I want the attention to be on God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The commandments here in verse number 2 were given to apostles. This term apostle was a term that was already common among the Jews. It didn't just come to, to existence when Christ called His twelve disciples apostles. It was a term that was already familiar in the culture in Greek culture, in Jewish culture, the term apostle just simply means to be sent, to be commissioned, to be delegated, if you will. All born-again believers are apostles in the practical sense. Wouldn't you agree that as a born-again believer, that we are sent by God into a lost and dying world to deliver them the good news of salvation? In a practical sense, we are all apostles. In a technical sense, though, there are some requirements to determine what an apostle is. I'm going to give them to you. Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number 2, Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. This is some great attributes of a church. But I would remind you that this same church 
in just a few verses, the Lord rebukes them saying, you lost your first love. I, I would say that that's probably in, in many cases, not other churches, but I would say right here at this church, we have some of the same strengths that Ephesus has. But perhaps we have the same weakness as well. You don't have to be like Ephesus and not bear them which are evil, have backbone, and not also have feeling. We can have both, brothers and sisters. We can have that feeling and passion and that worship, and yet we can still be no-nonsense Christians saying, hey, thus saith the Lord, we ain't putting up with a bunch of nonsense. But he says here that this church at Ephesus, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. Nothing new about people claiming to be apostles. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, in verse number 12, here's a, thus saith the Lord. Truly, Paul says, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. Here's what some of them are. In all patience, in signs, and wonders, and mighty deeds. How about that? The sign of an apostle, Paul says there's going to be some patience, some signs, some wonders, and some mighty deeds. Let me tell you something. If you have signs and wonders and mighty deeds, you don't have to go around telling everybody about them. I've yet to have one of these apostolic Christians that's not always talking about their apostolicism, if that's a word. They have to draw attention to it because what they have is not the real stuff that the real apostles had. How about 1 Corinthians chapter number 9 and verse number 1? Paul says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Listen to this. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Because of this text, I believe that the times of the apostles ceased when all of the people... All of the apostles who had physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ when the last one passed away. In fact, in the book of Acts, we'll see it in time to come. It says they continued steadfastly in prayers and in the apostles' doctrine. The Holy Spirit gives us just little clues along the way, little pieces of the puzzle to where we can bring all that together and make sense, even though many people take these things out of context. The Catholic and Mormon church claim apostolic succession. They, they, they say that, hey, we have a living apostle and he's just like the apostles and that line has continued from generation to generation. Some today claim to be apostolic simply because they experience some personal manifestation such as fits of speaking gibberish, Barking like a dog, etc. Now, I'm not meaning to be critical of people that have these manifestations. I'm just simply saying that that is not, doesn't have anything to do with any of the signs of the apostle that the scripture makes quite plain. I'm going to stick with the scripture. And by the way, these manifestations of speaking gibberish, of barking like a dog, of having a fit, are nothing new. 
You can read about them in early biographies in the church. You can read about them from the 1600s in times of revival. You can read about them uh, as a, a countermeasure of the Welch revival, of things that actually hindered and took down a good move of God. And what they called it back in those days was fanaticism. And in some ways, it was considered a mental imbalance. I, I don't know. Some people, I believe, are deceived. You say, well, wait a minute. What about the gift of tongues? We're going to see in time to come that in Acts chapter number 2, when the Holy Ghost comes down, according to the promise that we read about in our opening text, that they began to preach in tongues. But all of those tongues were various languages. They were not unknown gibberish. And so that's the Word of God. You say, well, I, you know, I, I experienced this. I, I don't know what to tell you to do with your experience. My, it's not my job to analyze your experience. It's my job to teach you what the Word of God says. But I would encourage you to analyze your experience. But I would say this. All of these things that are supposedly apostolic, where is the power in any of it? If you have to talk about it and you have to promote it, I don't find anywhere where the apostles talked about it or promoted it. I find that when Peter's shadow passed over a man that was lame, he began hopping and leaping and praising God. Or as my niece said, when she was just a little girl, she'd go around singing about that song and she'd say hopping and leaking and praising God. Where's the power in any of it? Why have the apostolic gift of healing? What are you doing with it? Don't tell me about it. Go down to Iredale Hospital and do something with it. Amen? I don't see any, I don't see any of that. It's, you know what it is. It's all of these little vague generality things and the apostles had power. Those signs and those wonders, they would follow them and man, the people would see, especially, I mean, those Jewish people saw, wow, there's something supernatural going on here. Where's the power in any of that Stuff today. You notice I'm trying to be kind and gentle. Verse number three. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here we see that Christ shows himself alive to his apostles. Now here's a group of men that had forsaken all and followed him. That's a great thing to do. In fact, discipleship is something that God expects all of us to do. Are you saved here this morning? Raise your hand. All right? Don't raise your hand at this question, but are you a disciple here this morning? Because if you raised your hand on the first question, you are not in the will of God if you can't raise your hand for the second question. Discipleship is expected of every believer. We are supposed to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ shows Himself alive to His disciples. The method that Christ used was, number one, He'd call them. Number two, they followed. 
And then number three, he reveals himself. And folks, it was almost without any exceptions, always in that order. You think about the disciples. He'd show up while they were fishing. He'd say, come on with me and I'll make you fishers of men. You know what they did? They left their nets and they followed him. They didn't, they didn't understand anything. They just followed him. And then the process of manifestation and learning and growing, it began those building blocks until by the end of, by the time that this is happening after the resurrection, they'd had their failures. They'd had their problems. But more and more and more, Jesus Christ makes Himself real to them. You know what the problem with America today? You know what the problem with evangelism is today? It's not that we need to change our music and our methods in order to reach the millennial or to reach the baby boomer. The problem is, is the power is gone because people have this mindset, God, show me and I'll do it. Make yourself real and I'll believe. And the whole time, the whole nature of God and His creation of man, the whole nature of faith is faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Bible says that, that, that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hey, you want God to be real to you? then you better take Him at His Word and believe with all of your heart, and then you'll see. If you say, God, let me see and I'll believe, you're going to be waiting a long time because that's just not the way that God works. We'll say, that's not the way I want Him to work. You know, I'm not trying to be mean, but really the only thing I can say to that mentality is tough. Tough, because God's not changing. I'm perfectly fine with a God who doesn't fit in my mold. In fact, if God were the God that I wanted Him to be in my mind, I would be so insecure that the Christian life would be no better than the life out in their world. I'm glad that I've got a God that I can be secure in that's holy. Yes, He sends people to hell who reject Him. But yes, He loves us so much that He suffered. And He bore my sins on Calvary's cross so that I could be saved and redeemed. He's a good God. If He sent me to hell, He'd still be good. And if He sent you to hell, He'd still be good. Well, I don't like a God like that. Sorry, He's the only one that is. He ain't changing for you. We need to change for Him. You say, well, I just don't know that I can do that. Okay, Fine. Live your miserable life with no real power or real God and just go through the life like everybody else does. But I got news for you. You're gonna, you're gonna end up your life pretty lonely, pretty miserable, and with a lot of regrets. The life of faith, the Christian life of just saying, God, I know you love me. I don't understand everything about you, but I trust you. I know that you're right, and I know that you're good, and I know that you're righteous. And I'm just going to put my faith and my trust in you. You do that, and you talk about God being real and powerful. Man, He will change your life in ways that you just could not ever imagine that He would change. 
verse number four, we see that they were assembled together. It says, and being assembled together with them, a true church, a true church is an assembly where Christ is present. No doubt in my mind, as I drive through America and as I drive through Iredell County and uh, Central and Western North Carolina, as I see church after church after church after church, say, what's a good church and what's a bad church? Well, you got all kinds of different names that you can find on churches. Now these new modern modern startup churches or churches that have kind of went, I guess contemporary is the only way I know to describe them. When they go that direction, they take off all identifying marks. You know, it's like, I'm trying to even remember some of them. Um, Grace Church, New Life Church, We're Awesome Church. Come and be awesome with, you know, you know what I'm saying. And I drive by them and I see, I, I look at the names of that church and I go, I pretty much think I know what you're going to get there. You get the same old thing. But it's not about the name on your church. I, I don't think that there is any man or denomination or church that God just automatically gives His endorsement because of your label. I think God, and you read Revelation, Ephesus, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamos, Philadelphia, Laodicea, God judges a church by the nature of a church. And I'll tell you what's a good church. A good church is where the Lord Jesus Christ is present with them. We're not a good church. I don't care. We, we can have the right Bible. We can have the right hymn book. I mean, we can enjoy one another's fellowship. But if Jesus Christ does not assemble with us, we are not a good church. I don't care how much you get out of it socially. What we need is we need the Lord Jesus Christ in our presence. How do we get His presence? Well, find out what He likes. You ever invited somebody over to your home? You know, some some, some people have things that they like to eat that other people don't like. I know, there's no doubt in my mind that my wife fixes meals for me that you wouldn't like. We eat some crazy things. Some of you are nodding. Well, we do. My wife's very adventuresome and she'll, you know, we'll be in an Asian restaurant and she'll say, I want to learn how to make that. And, uh, and, and so we've traveled the world. We've eaten a lot of culturally diverse things. We like spicy food. But you know what? If I'm going to have you over to my home, I'm not going to make you eat something that I like that you don't. I'm going to try to find out what you like, right? Don't you think that if we want Jesus to assemble with us, we need to make sure that we're in touch and in tune with what He likes so that He feels welcome in our midst? That's not that hard to do. We just read about it in the Bible. I know that, I know one thing, the Lord uh, the Lord doesn't want us to love the world. He says, love not the world, right? And I know that if we have unforgiveness toward one another in our heart, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And I know that when we grieve the Holy Spirit, then there's a tension and an awkwardness. You ever been around somebody that you really don't have total peace with? You might can put up with them, but you can't be close with them. 
just going to be kind of surface. I don't want Jesus to just show up on the surface. I want him to be right here in the midst of us. And I want to make sure that we are doing what he wants us to do and we're doing what he's blessing rather than just try to see, hey, God, this is what we're doing. How about blessing it? Better yet, God, what are you blessing? That's what we're going to do. That's a relationship. A true church is an assembly where Christ is present. And Christ admonishes the churches in Revelation. He reveals the criteria. There's got to be some doctrinal purity, some moral purity. There's got to be some obedience. This assembly here in Jerusalem is a church in the practical sense. Now, bear with me. Don't don't jump to any conclusions. They are assembled together. The definition of church is an assembly or a congregation. In fact, the Bible refers to the children of Israel out in the wilderness that they were the church in the wilderness. What They were a congregation, a group of people that God brought them out of Egypt. But don't confuse the meaning of the word church with the title of church. Yes, they were a congregation. Yes, we have here a church in the practical sense, but in the technical sense... The church official has not yet begun. So where does the church start? I've had, I've had conversations with friends and preachers and Bible students many times. Where did the church begin? Well, I'm just going to tell you the way I see it. And people who don't see it this way, uh, I, I don't have, I don't have a big problem with it. I just know that I'm part of the church today. I know that you could make an argument that certainly the cross is a dividing line between the Jew and the Gentile, between the kingdom and the church. But take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 13. The Bible says here, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. This body that's being referred to as the body of Christ, it is the church. It's not necessarily a local church. It's everyone that's ever been saved. We're part of God's church, the body of Christ. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. This is something that the Lord is telling His apostles that you're going to experience this not many days hence. It's getting ready to happen here at Pentecost. And so when the Holy Ghost comes down, they were baptized, they were immersed into the body of Christ. On a tech, or excuse me, on a practical basis, however, Matthew 18, verse number 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, Setting all that aside, when did the church begin? Did it begin at Pentecost? Did it begin when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost? Did it begin back with Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord? I mean, whatever your viewpoint is that all of it's been the same, whether Old Testament or New Testament, regardless of that. And I know that the devil's really okay with God's people always arguing about these points. Because if he can keep us all worked up about those points, then 
we'll kind of neglect the part that's really important. And that's the next verse, Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse number 25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There was already people that were not faithfully attending church or assembling together. But he says, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. I'm not going to try to catch you with guile here this morning and to trick you into making a commitment, but I guarantee you if I were to ask you the question, ask you to raise your hand if you believe that we're in the last days, probably all of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, it's getting wicked and bad out there. We're in the last days. Then I just ask the question, don't you think that it's hypocritical to recognize how bad things are getting and how that we're in the end times and be haphazard and complacent about church attendance or church attentiveness? I don't think that God's saying that you just need to show up and be counted on the roll as the, the last days approach. I think what Jesus is telling us, the Lord is saying that as you see the day approaching, it's going to get worse and worse and worse, and you're going to need more Word of God, you're going to need more fellowship, you're going to need more strength from the brothers, so you better come and assemble together. You better be there because you might get just exactly what you need, and if you don't, you may stumble and fall because it's a wicked world out there. Lot thought he could get away with it. Lot Lot was a just man. He was declared righteous. It didn't do him much good. It certainly didn't do his children any good because they didn't respect him. So he had all kinds of priorities that were more important than God, and he thought that he was going to be an influence to the leaders of Sodom by being one of them. That didn't work so good, did it? The Scripture says that his righteous soul was vexed by their unlawful deeds. From day to day, assembling ourselves together. Thank God we've got a place here where we can come out from the world and all of the nonsense that's going on out there and we can draw strength from the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and strength from one another as we're going through the same challenges. My oh my, I enjoyed fellowshipping with you, Brother Scott. I mean, street ministry, we're out there trying to reach people holding up gospel signs, but there is a dual benefit to that because I got to hear Brother Scott talk about how that the Lord's been speaking to him as he's been reading there in the Word of God, and I'm just standing there going, oh, that, that just challenged and encouraged my heart. There's someone that's hungry to read and to learn and to listen to God speak to him. Man, we need that, brothers and sisters. Wow, I need more time this morning. Verse number 5, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Folks, this is not a second work of grace. There may be a time later in your life that you experience the Holy Ghost in a powerful way, but this is not you getting more of Him. It's Him getting more of you. Some here would keep in mind that The Lord had died. You had some people here that had believed in Jesus from the preaching of John the Baptist. They'd been baptized in water, but they didn't even know that 
the Messiah who they had believed in when they'd repented of their sins. They didn't even know that he had been crucified and resurrected. They weren't there at Pentecost. And so you had some that received the Holy Ghost after they were baptized, Acts 8, 14 through 17. But keep in mind, this was a time of transition. And I can say with all authority that everyone who gets born again today is a recipient of the Holy Ghost. Say, how can you say that with all authority and with such confidence? Well, Romans 8, verse number 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We get born again, we receive the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. They're synonymous because three persons, but one God. You don't have the Spirit of God in you. Now listen, if the Spirit of Christ comes inside of you, there's going to be some changing going on. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying you're not going to struggle with sin and temptation, but you're going to know hey, something is different inside. You talk about something messing up your sin life, a good dose of regeneration will wreak havoc on it. You talk and you say, well, I, I feel guilty when I do wrong. You get the Holy Ghost on the inside, you don't even know guilt yet. You don't know conviction. You don't know condemnation until you start grieving the Holy Spirit of God that's inside of you. I think probably the most schizophrenic, messed up mentally person is the person who's truly born again, but living in the far country, living in wickedness. See, that's a pretty bold statement, preacher. How can you say it? Because I was one. It's a it's a messed up place to be, to believe in your heart, to have God living inside of you and be defiling his temple and continually grieving him. You know, you can't win out in the world. You get out there in the world and you, you love and enjoy the pleasures, but you feel horrible inside. You get around God's people and your your, your heart still wants the world out there. There's no place that you can fit in. I thank God that God got a hold of my heart. When I got right with Him, I finally found, hey, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is the place of peace and contentment and fellowship. Being saved and then living right with God. What a joy, what a blessing. Verse number 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Here again, transition, the, the disciples did not have complete understanding as of yet. They didn't understand all that was going on. They are still looking and hoping for that kingdom because after all, that's the message that they had been preaching. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom. They're still looking for that restoration of the kingdom. Don't you think that you put yourself in their shoes that maybe perhaps... Not only are they looking for the kingdom, but maybe they're looking for some vindication. I mean, after all, they've been saying the kingdom of heaven's at hand. They've been telling strangers all over the place, going from city to city, two by two, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And here's Jesus getting ready to go back to heaven and say, uh, aren't you forgetting something? You're going to make us look bad here, Lord. You're taking away our credibility. We want to be vindicated. I uh, I sometimes feel that way. 
I sometimes do you ever get frustrated that we don't have the power that you know we ought to have? I was witnessing, Brother Scott and I were witnessing to an atheist yesterday, and I just this guy is just talking over the top of us. He's just rattling off all of his beliefs and everything. And and by the way, I'm praying for him. I'm praying for him because I don't want to see his soul go to hell. I don't want to see him waste his life in bitterness. Here's a man who two times point blank told me, he said, when you see God, tell him I hate him. Now, I know people feel that way, but it's shocking to hear somebody with such arrogant adamance to actually say that. I'm just like, wow, that, how do you say that? But I found myself frustrated because, Lord, I, I know I can't argue this guy into salvation. I wish I had that power of God where he just couldn't resist my spirit like with Stephen. Of course, he might, might have stoned me, might have killed me. But you know, the only thing that we have in those situations is just the power of prayer. Because I know that our belief is real. And if God is real, then I hope and pray that His power would be manifest. I gave the man my card and I said, you know, if I'm going to pray that God humbles you. I didn't say it means spirited. I said, I'm going to pray for you that God humbles you and makes Himself real to you. Here's my card. If that ever happens, if I can ever help you, you know how to get in touch with me. Oh, how I would love to someday, one day, whether it's weeks, months, or years, to get a call from this guy and say, hey, I'm the guy that you talked to. And God answered your prayer. And I got born again. Not only would I rejoice for him, but what, don't you think there would be a feeling of vindication that, hey, you know what? What we had to offer was real and it was right. I'm sure the apostles felt that way. Verse number 7 And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Don't waste your time and talent. It's sad to think of how much time and attention has been wasted over the years. Bible scholars and teachers trying to figure out the time when the Lord makes it clear that God doesn't want us to know it. You say, well, that's the the rapture. Uh, We can date the rapture, but not the second coming. Help yourself, but I got news for you. You're You're wasting your time and your talent because it really shouldn't matter. If you figure out that the Lord's coming back in 17 days, what difference should it make in our life? Shouldn't we be living our life today as if He's coming today? So just keep doing that for 17 more days. It wouldn't matter. Hey, if we're living the way that we're supposed to be living, and in my study I've discovered, hey, He's coming back in 17 days. Listen, you know what I would probably do with that? Nothing. Because it wouldn't help you. What I need to do is say, hey, he could be coming back today. Let's live like he's coming back today. Because I know that anything else is just going to be temporary reform anyhow. Don't waste your time. You know, beware of teaching that requires such a technical mind or high IQ in order to comprehend it. You know why? One of the reasons I disagree with hyper-Calvinist theology based on just what the Word of God says and my understanding of it, but 
I'll tell you another big red flag for me is that you can't understand some of their system unless you have this high IQ and this technical mind. Last time I checked, the Lord said that it would be the Holy Spirit that would reveal truth, not high intellectual IQ and technicality. Rather contrary, I find that people with high IQs and technical minds and high educations, they typically don't have a tendency of being godly. 1 Corinthians says, God chose the foolish things and the base things to confound the wise. I thank God for that, don't you? I'm glad that it's not my mental capacity, but I can learn and I can study to show myself approved unto God. I don't have to show, I don't have to write books or study and find things in order to impress you or to prove anything to you. The primary context of that verse is to show ourselves approved unto God. I'll move on. I know you want me to. Verse number eight says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Our last orders are summarized to wait Number one, to receive and to witness. And I want to draw special attention to what Jesus says, ye shall be witnesses unto me. We are not responsible for getting people saved. We are doing it unto the Lord Jesus Christ. If they receive, if they get born again, if they pray a prayer, praise the Lord, that's wonderful. But if it doesn't happen like so often today in our outreach efforts. If it doesn't happen, it's a win-win situation because we're not doing it unto them. We're doing it unto the Lord. And if we can tell people about Jesus and put a smile on his face, we just won. You cannot lose telling people about Jesus Christ, no matter how they respond. Verse number nine, we see that Christ's appearance will be likewise the way that he went up. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm not going to take the time here, but the next point in verse number 10, we find those two angels that you know, are standing right there as Jesus goes up. No doubt they're the same angels in Luke 24 that were uh, at the tomb, at the sepulcher when the disciples showed up there. Nothing more is said of these angels because the focus is not on angels, but on Jesus Christ. And then uh, one of the last things I want to say to you this morning is found in verse number 11, where the angels said, Ye men of Galilee... Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. We should have a matter-of-fact approach to faith rather than a looking-for-something-awesome approach. These angels are saying, why are you gazing? People today are looking for something awesome. What God wants us to have is just a matter-of-fact that God said it, That makes it true, and that settles it. Matter of fact, we don't have to have some great experience. It doesn't have to be awesome. It just has to be real. And that's the approach that God wants us to have. In conclusion, I find that few Christians live life on our last orders. 
some witness. Some are involved in outreach, but are not doctrinally or morally pure. Others are doctrinally pure, but they're not telling anybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just proud of themselves for having the right truth and believing the right things, but they don't bother telling others about Jesus Christ. The church of Thessalonica was a tremendous example of following Christ's last orders. And you can find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. I read in Wikipedia, I was surprised at the number of incidents that are actually recorded in Wikipedia. Literally hundreds, hundreds of Japanese soldiers were discovered from VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day, the end of World War II, all the way up into the 1970s. Literally hundreds of Japanese soldiers found in remote islands, in the mountains of Guam, in the mountains of the Philippines, that for 30, 25, 30, 35 years, that were continuing to fight the war. Why? Because they hadn't received any new orders. They had been given an order. It had been instilled in them, don't quit, don't surrender. Some of them couldn't even believe when they heard the news that their generals had surrendered because it was so ingrained in them that that's the worst thing that can happen. And so they refused to quit or they didn't hear the news. They just stood at, they stayed at their post. They continued doing what they were ordered to do. Why can they have so much honor and so much fortitude to obey their last orders when God's people, we have the perfect commanding general. We have the orders that are true. Why is it that we find it difficult to do likewise? Few Christians live life on our last orders. Are you? Are you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be here in church today. I thank you for the attentiveness of your people. We went a little bit long here this morning, but I hope and pray that you've used it or that you will use it. We've done our best to draw out Acts 1, 1 through 11, to bring out its truths in a helpful way. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and have your will and way. Help us to be obedient and to live our lives according to our last orders. Help us to be witnesses Help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If there be anyone here today that is not saved, I pray, God, that you'd save them before they leave this building, before they go off into eternity, risk being in a devil's hell. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain seated, head bowed, eyes closed. I know we're running late here this morning, but I'd like to give you an opportunity. If God has spoke to your heart about anything, like to give you a minute to respond here. Come down to the altar. No one else is looking. Some have come. If you need to get somewhere and I've kept you later than you can be, then you're welcome to just slip out. I don't want to keep you here and be discourteous of your time. But allowing God to deal in our heart yielding to Him. There's nothing 
that I know of that can be more important than that. Perhaps something has been said here this morning that struck a chord with your heart. You know it to be true and you know it to be lacking in your life. Would you come?